0: If you're not yet a Christian, but you're considering uh, the Christian faith, I think there are two questions, two key questions that you've got to answer. And if you are already a Christian, and you want to live the Christian life with joy and with purpose, you've got to answer those same two key questions. And those questions are, why should you trust Christ with your life? And the second one is, why should you give your life to him in service? And the passage that we are looking at this morning answers both of those questions. And we're in the last two days of Jesus's earthly life, and this is happening at a key time, a key moment in the life of the Jewish calendar, in the life of Israel. Okay, look at verse one. It was now two days before the Passover. Now, when it's your birthday, maybe you invite friends over for a meal. Okay, Or when you get married, you invite all the guests, or at least some of the guests, the the honoured guests, you invite them for a dinner. If a head of state visits, the hosts throw a banquet in honour of them. Even today, feasts matter, don't they? But for Israel, okay, the Feast of Passover was special. It was celebrated every year, but it could only be celebrated within the walls of Jerusalem. And so at Passover, pilgrims flocked into the city. And its population, which was maybe about 30,000, would swell to five or 600,000. Okay, imagine the nightmare that must have been to police. It would be like a large town, maybe twice the size of Morges, facing an influx of every inhabitant from Geneva, Lausanne and Zurich, all turning up at the same time to party for a week, and none of them have got anywhere to live. But for the Roman occupying forces, whose job it is to police uh, this, they would have been nervous for another reason. And the reason is, why was Passover being celebrated in the first place? Well, it's celebrated to celebrate Israel's deliverance from slavery and from the oppressive rule of Egypt and the hope that God is going to do it again one day. So Passover, if you're a Roman, Passover is like an annual time bomb waiting to explode. It would be like every single French-speaking Swiss person in Switzerland descending on Lausanne for an annual celebration of being liberated from the power of the German speakers, but for that to happen at a time when they are occupied and oppressed by Germans. And that is why Mark tells us that the the religious leaders wanted to arrest and execute Jesus, verse one, by stealth, and not, verse two, during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. Okay, but if you notice, if you look verse two and verse 10, they fit seamlessly together. In verse 1, that you've got the leaders looking for a way to arrest Jesus by stealth, but not wanting to do that during the feast, verse 2. And then in verse 10, you've got Judas Iscariot, who is one of the 12, going to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. Those two link seamlessly together. But Mark doesn't link them seamlessly together, if you notice. Instead, he gives us one of his famous sandwiches and between the desire of the leaders to arrest Jesus and Judas offering to show them how they can do it Mark inserts this account of the woman anointing Jesus and he does it for a reason To okay, first point a contrast of hearts now every week Andrew Paris wherever he is where's Andrew Every week, Andrew Paris helps me lead the student and young adult Bible study group. But frequently, there is more than one Andrew in the group. And so Andrew Paris is old Andrew, to distinguish him from the young Andrews. Okay, why do I tell you that? Look at verse 3. and He's also a great guy, okay, as well as being old Andrew. Look at verse 3. And while he, Jesus, was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper... Why label him like that? I mean, that's a bit insulting. You know, using a, his illness or a previous illness to define who he is. You know, that's a bit in, insulting. Isn't it? Why? Why point out that? That's stigmatizing. Well, it's not, is it? It's because Simon was the most common Jewish name at the time. So if you wanted to tell all of the Simons apart, you called them Simon the Pharisee, or there's Simon the Zealot, or that's Peter, who is also, or Simon who is also called Peter, or, and this one is Simon the Leper. Okay, why point that out? Because Mark is writing this to Christians in Rome, and in Rome, if you made a list of the 100 most popular male names, Simon would, if it made the list at all, it would be right down at the bottom. So why does Mark say this? It's because this is who Simon was. Simon's a real person. Mark is not making this up for some audience in Rome. This tells you Simon was a real person and Jesus went to his house for dinner. And while he's there, verse three, a woman came with an alabaster jar of pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. And when Mark, says it is very costly. He's not exaggerating, is he? I mean, people who are present there estimate it is worth 300 denarii. That is a year's salary for the average working man. But she's not a working man. She's a woman. And she would have had no access to this kind of money, which means this is likely a treasured family possession So, the value of this to her is not just financial, is it? And yet, she doesn't just pour out a few drops and keep the rest. She doesn't even just pour out a handful. I'll give that to Jesus. She pours it all out on him. Mark tells us she broke the flask. No going back. No holding nothing back. Now, does she remind you of anyone? Think of the poor widow with her two small copper coins. Because the monetary value of these two gifts, two small copper coins, and this ointment of great price, their monetary value is poles apart, isn't it? But both of these are sacrificial And Mark inserts this here for a reason. It is to contrast her sacrificial devotion, giving the most valuable thing that she has. He's contrasting that to Judas and the priests. You see, look how the room responds, verse four. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was this ointment wasted like that? And Mark doesn't tell us specifically who it was. Okay, Matthew does. Uh, Matthew, who was there, tells us it was the disciples, probably including himself there. And John tells us where the grumbling began, and it was with Judas Iscariot. And the complaint, verse 5, is that this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 Neri and given to the poor. But John tells us that Judas didn't say that because he cared about the poor because he kept the money back and he helped himself to it and this money could have come his way okay but think about the implications of what they are saying they are seeing this money effectively being spent on Jesus and effectively they are saying he's not worth it he's not worth it whereas the woman thinks he is worth every penny of it ask yourself who would you have sided with if you had sat around that table you see mark tells us that the others verse five scolded her but jesus comes to her defense verse six leave her alone why do you trouble her she has done a beautiful thing to me you always have the poor with you and whenever you want you can do good for them but you will not always have me so it's interesting isn't it where these disciples see waste Jesus sees beauty which means that whether it is virtually worthless copper coins or a possession of great worth no gift however small or great is ever wasted on Jesus And yet, look at what Jesus says. Because frankly, this is gobsmacking. They can help the poor anytime they want. In other words, firstly, hey, don't use the poverty of others, don't use the vast need that is out there, that exists, as a cover for covetousness, as a reason to hold on. But he's saying something else as well, isn't he, if you notice. He is saying that he is above the needs of the poor think about that if i were to say to you i am more important than all the poor out there so you spend your money on me what would you say you'd say you are deluded who do you think you are and yet here is jesus saying that he is more important than the second most important commandment Love your neighbour as yourself. What is more important than that? Or the first commandment? To love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength. And here is a woman doing exactly that. Now, to be clear, does this mean that we shouldn't care about social justice? or trying to alleviate poverty? Absolutely not. One reason that the early church spread like wildfire is that it cared for those whom nobody else cared for. But it does mean that it's Christ who has our ultimate allegiance and not political action, either on the left or the right. Okay, but why does she do it? Why the ointment? What does she see in Jesus that everyone else in that room is clearly missing? Well, Jesus tells us, doesn't he? Verse 8. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And we have repeatedly seen the disciples struggling to understand, failing to get it when Jesus talks about his approaching death. Why are they struggling to get it? Because they're thinking Messiah Victory, political victory, military victory, chuck out the Romans kind of Messiah. That's what he's come for. But the woman, she has understood. And so she does what she can do ahead of time. She loves and she loves sacrificially and she prepares him for burial. And Jesus says, verse nine, truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Here's a question for you. Have you ever have you thought yet about what you want written on your gravestone? There's a cheery thought for a sunny Sunday morning. Have you ever thought what you want people to say, or you, what, have you ever thought what people will say at your funeral, or what you hope they would say? And have you ever thought about how those might be slightly different? Whatever whatever is written on your gravestone or whatever is said at your funeral, it'll be about you, won't it? It'll be about the person who's died. But here, Jesus is saying he's going to die, but the memorial is going to be about her because he will need no memorial. There's not going to be a grave for a gravestone. But he also says it, because she has understood what is at the heart of the gospel that the good news is not your best life now and the good news is not fight poverty and then god will accept you any more than your greatest enemy are those people on the left telling you we've got to fight poverty so fight them that's not the good news either at the heart of the gospel is that Christ died for our sins. And, so, and she got that. And so every time the gospel is proclaimed, it is a reminder that this woman got it right. But maybe it's that realisation that Jesus really is serious about dying that is the final straw for Judas. Okay, verses 10 to 11. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the 12, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. Money's got a grip on his heart, hasn't it? Okay, but combine that. Combine money having a grip on your heart with the thinking that Jesus is not the Messiah that you want him to be. And that is a deadly combination. You see, Mark tells us he was one of the 12 he has spent 3 years up close and personal with jesus but now he walks away because you can know lots about jesus you can even have had lots of religious experiences but christ still not have your heart and that is a contrast that mark wants you to see between a woman whose heart jesus does have between a woman who loves and loves at great cost, and a man who walks away. Because think how Mark's readers in first century Rome would have seen it. They're in Rome, Nero's on the throne, and they are beginning to feel the pressure of being followers of Christ. If they continue to refuse to worship in the temples, it's not just gonna be their friends they're gonna lose. They're going to be shut out of the trade guilds. They are going to lose their livelihood, and within a couple of years of Mark writing this, some of them will be losing their lives. Okay, well, think about yourself. Think about the, money that the, the hold that money can have on our lives, or the desire for more, for more possession. Think of the hold that career can have on us, and that desire for more. Or that realisation that life is not turning out the way you wanted like it's not turning out the way Judas wanted. What do you do with that? Do you go for the money? Do you go for the more and let that have your heart? Do you look at the way that God isn't giving you the life you wanted? Jesus isn't isn't the Messiah you thought he was going to be and your heart grow cold towards him? Or do you look at this woman and the beauty of her act? and know that however much people might say you are wasting your life or however broken you might feel and life not going the way you want it you know Christ is worth it well two things here tell you that he is worth it you see up until now it's been Jesus who is driving the action from here on as Judas walks away, it begins to look like Jesus is at the mercy of events and other people are driving those events. What Mark wants you to see is that is a million miles from the truth. Second point, the sovereignty of God. Look at verse 11. Judas comes to the leaders and Mark tells us they were glad Because his coming means that their plans to be rid of Jesus are beginning to fall into place. When in reality, God is using them to bring about and to establish Christ's kingdom. The kingdom of the very one they are wanting to be rid of. Verse 12. On the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb... And they counted uh, the days from sunset to sunset, so it's Thursday. Everyone else is going to eat their Passover dinner on Friday night, but Jesus tells two of his disciples to go and prepare their dinner, their Passover meal a day early, because on Friday night, on Friday afternoon, as the Passover lambs are being sacrificed in the temple, Jesus will be dying on the cross. And the disciples prepare the place in verses 17 to 18. When it was evening, he came with the 12. And as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. Now, in our culture, you can eat with somebody, you can share a table with someone. It doesn't mean that much, does it? You know, Maybe you, you know, sit down next to somebody in the canteen at, at work or you meet for a business lunch or something. In Jesus' culture, to eat with someone, that was full of meaning. It meant that you were friends, that you trusted one another, that you approved of one another. It's why the religious leaders saw who Jesus ate with, and they got seriously cross about it. He's a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Why do they think that? Because he's eating with tax collectors and sinners. And so Jesus being betrayed is bad enough, but to be betrayed by one who is eating with me, that is a double betrayal. We would say it's like being stabbed in the back. It's why commentators hear here an echo of Psalm 41 verse 9. Even my close friend In whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. Yet, what Mark wants you to see is that none of this took Jesus by surprise. The disciples are sorrowful, asking verse 19, Is it I? And Jesus simply repeats, It is one of the twelve. Why not be more specific than that? Because he knows it's going to be Judas. So why not name him? Because by dawn, they will all have abandoned him. Judas will betray him for money and maybe for disillusionment. Everyone else will abandon him for fear or moral cowardice. Yet none of it surprises Jesus. Verse 21, for the son of man goes as it is written of him. He knows that God is working through his enemies to see his promises come true except the one place in the old testament where the son of man is mentioned is daniel chapter 7 and there the son of man's not betrayed there the son of man is not suffering There the Son of Man is coming to God, the Ancient of Days, and he is given a kingdom that will never end. Nowhere do we hear talk of the Son of Man suffering. So what does Jesus mean? Well, he is taking all of the Old Testament promises that speak of one who will suffer, and He is fusing them with the promise that the Son of Man is coming as the ultimate king promises like Genesis 3 and the seed of woman that will bruise the serpent's head but in the process will himself be bruised. Or Isaiah 53 and the servant of the Lord who will be crushed because he bears the iniquity of many but in the process will make many righteous. Or Daniel chapter 9 and the anointed one, the Messiah who will be cut off but in the process make a strong covenant with many. Or Zechariah 13, and the one who is struck, but he turns out to be the shepherd of God's sheep. In other words, yes, Judas will betray him, and yes, the authorities will kill him, but God is gonna use their evil actions to bring about his wonderful purposes. And they might be stood there thinking, excellent, things are beginning to move our way in our direction, but over it all and through it all, God is working out his plan to save his people and to glorify his son. But that doesn't mean that Judas isn't responsible for his actions, does it? Like he's a puppet on a string. Jesus makes it clear he is absolutely morally responsible. We all are. We're all morally responsible for what we do. What it does mean is that God doesn't simply work for good despite the actions of others. He works for good through the actions of others think what that means for your life. Joseph was sold into slavery by his brothers and he ended up falsely accused of rape and languishing in jail for years yet he at the end of it could look back and say you meant evil against me but God meant it for good and not just for my life but for the saving of many other lives. And so you and I, we can look at Jesus being betrayed and then crucified, the greatest of all evils, and know that what others meant for evil, God meant for your good. As Paul says in Romans 8, if God is for us, who can be against us? Which means that whatever life throws at you, however life, however bad, life might look for you or how bad it might get, whether that is your health or your job situation or others treating you badly, you can know that God will work this for your good. Secularism and the self-help gurus out there will tell you that your future is in your hands, so make of your life what you want. Christianity tells you something way better it tells you your life is in God's hands. And those hands are hands you can trust. There's a reason you can trust them. There's a second reason why Jesus is worth your costly acts of love. Last point the giving of Christ. Look at verse 22. As they were eating, he took bread and, after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them and said, Take. This is my body. Remember, this is happening in the course of a meal that remembers how God redeemed Israel from slavery in Egypt, how they had taken the blood of a lamb, painted it on their doorposts, and that night the angel of the Lord had passed over Egypt, and all the firstborn of Egypt died, but all the firstborn of Israel lived. They were saved because a lamb had died in their place. And here is Jesus, the firstborn son of God, breaking bread and saying, take, this is my body. I'm the ultimate Passover lamb. I give my life to save yours and to set you free from slavery. And the meal was shaped around four cups of wine. And Jesus takes a third cup, the cup of blessing, And he passes it round for them to drink. And then he says, verse 24, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. And the blood of the covenant was the blood of a sacrificial animal that Moses sprinkled over the people of Israel at Sinai as the mark that they were now God's people bound in covenant with him. But through the prophet Jeremiah, God had promised, Behold, the days are coming when I will make a new covenant. And Jesus is saying, that new covenant is sealed with my blood. So, it's not just the woman who stands in stark contrast to Judas, is it? It's Jesus himself. She gives the most valuable thing she has Jesus gives the thing of greatest value in the universe himself and he gives it for us. Judas sells Jesus for his own gain. Jesus gives himself for our eternal gain. Gregory of Nazianzus, one of the great church fathers, Gregory the theologian said, Christ is sold and cheap was the price yet he buys back the world at mighty cost. In other words, Christ was sold for so small a price, yet he buys us back, and how great the price. That is why you can trust him with your life, and it is why he is worth every costly act of love. As Paul writes in Romans 8, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Think about it, who sat around the table with Jesus that night at the Last Supper? It's not the table of the loyal, is it? Each one of them will either betray him or abandon him. But that is exactly who Jesus dies for, for them and for us. Because his table is a table of grace. They may abandon him, but he will never abandon you. But you've got to come and you've got to take from him. Take, he says, this is my body. You have to come by faith. You have to receive from him. But notice Jesus doesn't say, just think hard about my sacrifice. He says, just think long and hard about my sacrifice. He tells you to come and take and eat. drink. Why? Why make it physical? Well, why do you eat and drink at all? You eat and drink for energy, don't you? You eat and drink for, for, for strength. We eat and drink for pleasure. And as we come to his table, we feed on him and we allow him to strengthen us spiritually. And as we do, we taste and we see that the Lord is good. And as we do, you can know that Christ has done everything you need him to do to secure your forgiveness and your eternal safety and security in the hands of God, your heavenly Father, who loves you. See, look what Jesus says after passing the cup. Verse 25. Truly, I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God why say that that's an odd thing to say because it's the third Passover cup there's a fourth to come it's the cup of consummation the cup that ends the feast with the promise that one day God is going to put everything right and triumph over all of our enemies and Jesus doesn't drink that cup yet why not Well, later this night, as he is in the Garden of Gethsemane, he knows that God the Father is offering him a cup and he trembles to drink it. And just before they crucify him, they offer him wine to drink and he refuses. But then, as he hangs on the cross, right before he dies, he cries out, I thirst. And they offer him sour wine. And this time, He does drink it. He drinks the wine that he says he will not drink. And then he cries out, it is finished. What's finished? The Passover meal is finished. His sacrifice for you and for me is finished. He has delivered us from slavery to sin and to death. And he can drink the fourth and the final cup because he has thrown open the doors of his kingdom and he invites you to come. And he rules and he reigns, waiting for that day when he returns. And we will (coughs) sit with him in the greatest feast ever. Guys, you can trust him, and he is worthy of every act of sacrificial love on your part. Let's pray.